Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Inside Eastern podcast, a companion series to the Inside Eastern newsletter. This podcast series will bring you stories of innovation and impact from across the Eastern community. You will hear from faculty, staff, and administrators about Eastern's contributions to the ever-changing landscape of higher education. My name is Dr. Neeti Pandey, and I'm the Dean of the School of Education and Professional Studies and the Graduate Division. I'm the host of today's episode and honored to be speaking with our first guest, Eastern's President, Dr. Elsa Nunez. Dr. Elsa M. Nunez became Eastern's sixth president in 2006, following more than 20 years as a senior administrator at institutions including the City University of New York and the University of Maine System. Dr. Nunez is the first Latina to serve as a university president in New England, and over the last 18 years, she has firmly established Eastern's reputation as Connecticut's only public liberal arts university. Dr. Nunez recently contributed to a book called The Evolving College Presidency, Emerging Trends, Issues, and Challenges. The book provides guidance and career advice for aspiring college presidents and administrators as they prepare to take on leadership roles in the dynamic field of higher education. Welcome, Dr. Nunez. Thank you, Dr. Pandy. It's an honor to be part of the podcast. Dr. Nunez, in your chapter, you write about the ultimate presidential challenge of balancing access and quality in higher education. You state that increasing college access for underrepresented students is not only a moral imperative, but also an economic reality. Could you please expand on this? Yes, I, I welcome the question because I think it is right now, uh, given uh, where we are in our society with such division, and people with different perspectives on matters such as affirmative action, it's important that we educate as many people as possible. And the reason for that is that this is a great democracy. And you can't have a great democracy unless you have a full and um, vibrant middle class. So to provide a pathway for higher education from people from modest backgrounds is really important. And, you know, this, the story is one that's been told over and over. Harvard and Yale wants everybody who has straight A's. UConn wants B pluses and A's. And then no one wants a student with a C average from a poor background or a modest background. And so we have at Eastern maintained very high standards of admission, but provided a vehicle by which students can enter and prove themselves and have a pathword forward to a top-notch liberal arts college. And that's through the summer programs that we offer for our opportunity programs. Students can come in for six weeks and, you know, they might not have done that well in high school or they may be lacking in mathematics or writing, but during that six weeks, they work very hard. If they get a B in the courses that they take in the summer, then we admit them. And most students, most of them get that B and come to college. So we're very proud of that as a mechanism to increase the number of students from modest backgrounds who are at Eastern. So how can we improve opportunities for students from uh, underrepresented populations? Well, you know, it's it's been the case since I would say the 1960s after the the you know the the, the inner city riots that minority people from uh, people of color minority uh, marginalized people were admitted to college in greater numbers but they didn't succeed they were admitted and they it was sort of a revolving door 
And the literature showed in the 70s and 80s, people paid attention to that and said, what are the services? What are the, what are, what is it that the students need to ultimately attain that four-year degree? Because it, what does it matter to go to college for a semester or two and fail out or not do well or not feel good about yourself because you're not passing your courses. So the set of wraparound core, we call them wraparound courses, Dr. Pendy, that we offer our students at Eastern. And those wraparound um, services, rather, not courses, are really critical to their retention and graduation. So for example, in the library on the first floor, and when you go in, you'll see the Success Center. There you can, ha you can have tutoring and you can have supplemental instruction. Supplemental instruction is very different from tutoring. Tutoring is on one-to-one, -one and it's, it's based on a specific skill that you're trying to achieve, where supplemental instruction, the professors who teach that uh, in the tutoring center reteach the material in the course. So if you're taking organic chemistry or um, uh, comparative linguistics and you're having a hard time and you go in you just register tell them what course it is that you're struggling with and we will reteach the material and so for a lot of students working in small groups or working with a professor who reteaches the material is night and day it saves them from getting an F or a D and getting a C or a B and so those wraparound services are really important tutoring and supplemental instruction we also have um, it's really important here, uh, our own doctor and nurses. And so if you're ill, uh, if you're not feeling well, you may not have access to great medical care, but here you do. You know, a doctor will see you prescribe the right medicine or make sure that you see the right doctor if it's a referral situation. And then finally, psychological counseling. We have, as you know, everybody's talking about how fragile students are today, how much they need support. Uh, and so often, more than ever before, the students are now going to counseling for psychological uh, support. And that can be anywhere from a small problem to a very serious problem. And we don't give ongoing psychological um, support to a student, but we will refer them to an outside counselor or psychologist who can help them. But we get them through the difficult part first. And those wraparound services, when you put them all together, are what's gotten our retention rate to be 82%. We have one of the highest retention rates in the state. So thank you for sharing about those additional services that make such an impact on our students. Um, could you expand on how those additional services ensure equity on our campuses, especially in terms of what they provide for those underrepresented uh, populations? Yeah. It's, such, it's such an interesting question because everybody thinks in equity in terms of race and it's not always about race it can be about class you could be poor white and still need wraparound services because you come from an, uh, you know a background where you have not had the exposure that other students might have had who are from the middle class or upper middle class and so we work on um, an algorithm here at Eastern that has a bunch of variables and the variables tell us whether a student is at risk or not so I would, let's say that you and I are put in different cells. You're put in a cell that says you don't need a lot of support because you, your parents are well-educated. You come from a, 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 you know, a pretty uh, uh, a background financially stable. Uh, you got A's and B's in college. You got, uh, you know, you, you were in clubs and organizations and were team captain. And your profile shows that you, that you may never, but you're black. 
It doesn't mean that because all those variables, you have to be white. Those variables could be very applicable to an African-American person or a Hispanic person. On the other side of it, you, you, the variables may be your parents didn't go to college, your mother was on, on public assistance, you lived in with a voucher, uh, you had um, C's in high school, basically. You didn't belong to anything because you had to work all the time. And you're white, right? So, so you're more, more, that's equity. Equality is not just based on race, but it's based on what your background is and what the wraparound services may be that you need. So in the case of the first example I used, that person needs very little. They need a great faculty advisor. If they have a question, they can drop into the advisement center, you know, beyond their faculty advisor. They can join clubs and organizations and have a social network. But the second student I described, he or she may need a lot of supplemental instruction, a lot of tutoring, psychological counseling, because the parents or the mother and father may, may be in situations where they're vulnerable and the student is worried about their family. The family could be homeless, for example. And so we, we see equity in very broad terms at Eastern. However, we do find that the preponderance of people who need wraparound services do come from modest backgrounds. That's, that variable is very important. Thank you. So given the enrollment landscape, how do we continue to attract highly prepared students while also reaching out to students who come to campus with unique challenges? Yeah, and that's, you know, I think colleges and universities are guilty of always saying, give me all the best, all your A students. And you know that if you get all the A students like Harvard and Yale, most of them are going to graduate in four years. And that's why they have such a high graduation rate. I mean, it's not, it's not a, a, a mystery why they, those students are so successful. So we're a public university, and that public means a lot to me. The listeners uh, um, are taxpayers. And your taxes, part of your taxes, come to Eastern to subsidize the university. So we have your taxes, which is called state aid, and then we have um, tuition that students pay. So with that money, we're able to provide a first-class education uh, to everyone. And so I always say we are recruiting the full-pay students who can full afford to pay to subsidize the students who can't afford to pay. So we have to have a mix. You can't, I can't have everybody who can't afford to pay. I, I don't have enough financial aid to go around. And yet it wouldn't be fair to have everybody who's full pay, who's, because then I would have a stratified uh, student body in terms of class. I'd only have the wealthier students here, the sons and daughters of doctors, lawyers, you know, and entrepreneurs. And so mixing the class is, is very important so that we have that kind of diversity. Diversity isn't just about race. It's also about economic background, which of course encompasses class. It's about um, making sure we have men and women. We don't want an all-women's school. We don't want an all-male school. We also want students from different parts of Connecticut. We want students from out of state. Um, and so we build an entering class, making sure that all of those uh, different uh, uh, all of those individuals with different backgrounds are represented in the class. So I want to change um, tack here a little bit. Um, you describe in the chapter some pivotal experiences in your own life uh, that have driven home for you the value of a high-quality higher education experience. So, for example, in your chapter, you talk about your first, uh, your, uh, your first English professor, Dr. Morris McGee, 
Could you please share with our listeners about how this professor changed your life? Yeah, I think uh, to the listeners, I would say, if you close your eyes and think a moment, you didn't make it on your own. If you're successful and you think of yourself as a successful person, you think of it could have been a parent, it could have been an aunt, an uncle, a good friend, a neighbor, or it could have been a high school teacher, a coach, or a professor in college. Somebody who made a difference in your life and made that all that you've attained more attainable. And in my case, because I come from a very modest background, Um, Neither of my parents were college graduates, and they knew very little about college. And um, they they came to this country for a better life for their family. And my mom died at 93, my dad at 90, and they had this wonderful love and respect for America, for the United States. They felt this was the place where you could do better and your family could do better, that it was a a beautiful, beautiful democracy and they wanted to be part of it. And so when they came here with that dream, they brought the dream that their children should get an education. And so my father used to say, the only way to get out of this black hole, because we lived in public housing and we were poor, is to get an education. So my father provided, and my mother, a good high school education for me because I had I had to go from they they didn't want me to go to the public school they sent me to a, a school outside of the district and it was Catholic so I got a, what I thought was a a pretty good competitive high school education so when I went to college and I took my English 100 course so many of the people listening have have had that course I was I was immobile I couldn't. I could, all I kept thinking was, I got to get out of college. I don't belong here. These people are so smart. Dr. Pandy, they would answer a question and they would, they would write paragraphs with their question, answer, you know, verbally. And they were analytical and they could connect this author to another author. We, we read a novel, they, they could comment on the novel and the, the complexity of the characters with such sophistication. I felt like a fish out of water. I said, I don't know anything. These people are so much smarter than I am. I need to get out of here. So that was the, how I, what I was thinking. And I wrote my first essay, got it, and uh, got it back. And when I got it back, it was full of red marks. And oh, I almost, I had to fight so the tears wouldn't run down my face, but the students were all around, my classmates. And at the bottom it said, please see me about this paper. And I, I was gonna crumble it up and throw it in the garbage. But you know, I come from a family where authority figures are very important, so I figured I better go see him. He said I have to go see him. So I went, and he, Dr. McGee, was a, an American veteran from the Army, and he was in a wheelchair. He, in the war, he had lost the ability to walk. He had been injured. And I always say that his disability allowed him to see my disability. And I didn't have a physical disability, but my disability was that although I thought I got a great education in high school, it wasn't competitive like these other students who went to very, you know, elite schools, whether they were suburban or private. And so he said to me, what I want you to do, he said, is to come every day that I have office hours and you're going to sit next to my desk while you correct your paper and then I'm going to check it as you correct it. He said, you're intelligent. He said, you have good ideas, but you, your writing is poor. And I, I, I heard the second part, but somehow in my conscience, I, 
consciousness, I did hear the first part. And no one had ever told me I was smart or that I had good ideas. I don't think if he hadn't said the first part, I wouldn't have gone back. But because he said the first part, I felt like, well, okay. And I went back every single day that he was in his office. He would be writing. He was a, a very prolific scholar. He would be writing at his desk, and I'd be sitting across from him. And then when I, I would say, Dr. McGee, I'm ready, then I would hand him my essay, and he would read it. And they'd say, no, no, not a. And then he'd write, read all over it, some sections, until it was very good. And when it was very good, he'd say, this is fine. And then we went on to the next one. I passed the semester with a B, and I say that that B is, is it, it's on my chest as I am so proud. It, it could have been an A, I think, for maybe people would have felt prouder. I didn't care. That B, I earned that B. It meant a lot. And the love and care that he showed me without, he never said you're a minority, he never said you're poor, he never said where did you come from? He never put me down. All he said was, we're going to sit here and you're going to become a better writer. And so it was, it was transformational. I'm a very good writer today, and I owe it to Dr. McGee. But more than the writing, I think it was the confidence that he instilled in me that with hard work, I could do it. Thank you for sharing that very personal story. Um, so that makes me wonder about the Eastern difference that our faculty make. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh my gosh, we've gotten this, we have such a fabulous faculty at Eastern. I'll often get an email if the faculty see someone that's poor and they may not have food or they may not have, ha or they've shared somehow with the faculty member that there's a problem, the faculty member will email me or a dean or a vice president and we'll get the resources to the student because the faculty member cares. They're on the lookout all the time for signals of well-being. And when a student, they see a student who's not in, in that state of well-being, they will, they will um, act. I remember one one faculty member who saw a student losing a lot of weight, and he was careful because he didn't want to insult her and say, you know, what's going on, but he carefully asked her, are you okay? And she said no, and he walked her to psychological counseling. Later on, he found out that she was being abused by her boyfriend, and, and no one would have picked that up, but he walked her over to psychological counseling. He saw she was very vulnerable and, you know, he just saw something because he was used to seeing her in class. So we have this faculty that care about the academic standards and work with students, making sure they do what Dr. McGee did for me, but they also care about well-being and they're on the lookout all the time to make sure that students get the wraparound services that I described. And sometimes, you know, the student is not aggressive or assertive about getting them. They feel a stigma attached to going to counseling or that they are poor and don't have money for food. They feel a stigma. So when a faculty member empowers them, it makes all the difference in the world. So as you contemplate on your presidency and all you have experienced and accomplished at Eastern, what are the challenges that lie ahead for a higher education institution like us? Yeah, I'm very optimistic that that um, Eastern will have new leadership and that the leadership will be strong and institutions as presidents rotate out will have great leadership. There's a lot of young people out there who are ready to take the helm and they, they're seeing they're seeing higher education differently. Technology is one of the examples where uh, there there's there's such 
I don't know, right now there's such possibilities for technology to enhance teaching and learning and communication on campus and just social things also. And I think the future of higher education will be influenced enormously by technology. You can see it by all the articles right now on artificial intelligence and what, what that groundbreaking work is doing. Uh, even when you use voice-activated systems now, in the old days, you couldn't get anywhere with it. Now you can get very far with it. You see all of the technology in action and you say, you know, that can really make a university better. It can enhance, as I said, teaching and learning. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing I think is that there'll always be a place for a an institution like Eastern that's medium size, not too big, not too small. So I think that even though there's there are challenges, enrollment challenges, there'll always be students who will feel very comfortable coming to a public liberal arts college and having the 12 to 1 ratio with the faculty, getting a great letter of recommendation for medical school. We just got a student into Harvard Medical and uh, law school, and if you want to work, we have the employability initiative, which is all your four years, you're looking at the skills that you're learning in your courses and matching those up to the skills that you you need in your in your major for your career. And so you'll be ready for a job because your you know your resume will speak to those skills. So I think that uh, the future for higher education will depend a lot on on that second factor, which is making the education more personalized for the student more connected in, to the institution in ways that are meaningful. The online experience is a great experience, but it's not for everybody. And then finally, I would say that I do think that the social aspects of growing up for four years, you come in at 18, leave at 22, generally, that those four years of maturation with the support of the people that are around you will always be um, in demand. I think that uh, parents want their, their child or daughter, their uh, daughter or son, their child, to go to a place that's safe. We can't guarantee complete safety, but it's safe. It's also nurturing. And I think that higher education um, has provided that for many students. So I think, in my mind, it'll be different. You can imagine the Harvard president used to go away every summer to his summer house and didn't come back till September. I couldn't dream of doing that today, you know, taking the whole summer off and going to my summer house or going away anywhere for the whole summer. So things have changed enormously. I think pres the presidency, as I say in the book, has emphasized, uh, will emphasize and continue to emphasize different things for different students. But all in all, you want an institution to be excellent academically enriched, but also provide access and a quality um, uh, state so a student can take care of their well-being while being in college. Well said, Dr. Nunez. I think that sums up our mission as a public liberal arts university. Thank you, Dr. Pandey. This has been the inaugural episode of the Inside Eastern podcast. You have been listening to a conversation with Dr. Elsa Nunez about the challenges of balancing access and quality in higher education. She writes about this in the book, The Evolving College Presidency, Emerging Trends, Issues, and Challenges, published by IGI Global. Those interested in learning more can purchase the book at 50% discount through the publisher's website using the code IGI50. That's IGI50. Thank you, Dr. Nunez, for sharing your experiences and insights. Thank you to our listeners for streaming this episode. Be sure to keep an ear out for future episodes of the Inside Eastern podcast. Go Warriors! Go Warriors!